Welcome to The Common Round. Medical education for medical students by medical students. I'm Hamid. And I'm Andy. And joining us today is our executive producer, Gautam. Today we'll be talking about echolasia. Actually, not just echolasia, we'll be talking about most of the upper GI pathology with the exception of gourd, which we talked about in a previous episode. In this discussion, we'll be talking about achalasia, dyspepsia, dysphagia, a bit on Barrett's esophagus and peptic strictors. Um, is there any, anything else that you want to talk about today, Andy? No, let's, let's see how we go with these guys. Beautiful. So let's talk about achalasia because that can, it's a nice transition into the other sort of um, points that we want to discuss. Mm-hmm. And what is achalasia and how many types of achalasia are there? So with achalasia, we've got, um, Essentially, what it is is just, from my understanding, it's the lower esophageal sphincter that has trouble relaxing. There were a few reasons for why it doesn't yeah. relax. There yeah. was because the peristalsis was something funny with the peristalsis occurring in the esophagus. There's an increase in the muscle tone, and there's also a failure for the, the there's a damage in the muscle, the sphincter to actually relax, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. predominantly. What, yeah. what did you mean by the types of achalasia? I think there's, yeah. uh, broadly speaking, there's primary and secondary achalasia. Primary okay. achalasia is due to to decrease neural inhibition of the smooth muscle, probably because there's something happening to the enteric nervous system, which isn't too clear. Okay. You know, we're not sure what's happening. Maybe autoimmune that causes destruction of those nerves. And the smooth muscle is forever in this sort of tonic state where it's just really hard to yep. relax. But the secondary achalasia, an example of that would be due to Chagas disease, which is infective destruction of the enteric nervous system because of a protozoa. Now, I, I'm going to butcher this, the, the name, name of this uh, protozoa, <laughs> but I'm going to try. Trypanosoma. Cruzi, I think is the, the name. Uh, I could be mistaken. Please uh, send us your hate mail. We'd love to hear it. <laughs> but yeah, so you have essentially this destruction of the enteric nervous system that causes inability of the sphincter to relax. And so you, this brings us onto the symptoms that these patients complain about. Yep. What would be some of the symptoms, Andy? The lower esophageal sphincter is at the very distal end of the esophagus and the entrance to the uh, to the stomach. And so if, let's say, that sphincter is closed, everything you swallow will have trouble passing through into the stomach. And very quickly after when you start eating a meal, the patient will have will realize that they're having swallowing mm, difficulty. That's right. And sometimes they can regurgitate food as well. But the distinguishing feature about that is that, about that regurgitation is the undigested food. If they're bringing up digested food, it suggests that the stomach, the food is actually going through the stomach and being you know digested. So it's maybe something else going on in these patients. When they lie down, that food can cause quite a lot of pain for them. Okay. Or it can exacerbate their pain, and they okay. can complain of chest tightness and chest pain. Because imagine your esophagus is quite dilated. Yeah. And there's only so much space that it can accompany. But the risk is that, you know, you don't want to dismiss sometimes some of these symptoms as non-cardiac. You have to investigate cardiac symptoms as well. Chest pain. Okay. Yep. And I guess if you're not eating that much, if your nutrition, you know, eating and nothing is reaching the stomach, you're going to start losing a bit of weight as well. So they're some of the broad symptoms. Regurgitation. Dysphagia. Yeah. Dysphagia. So problem swallowing, which we're going to talk about later. Chest um, pain and Chest pain loss. and weight loss. That's okay. right. Yep. So how do you actually diagnose this condition, Andy? I guess one of the things we can do possibly is to look in an endoscope and physically look at the esophage at the sphincter mm. that that could be one way um, another way is to do a barium swallow and then have a look and see what exactly the sphincter and the esophagus looks like yeah there's a particular appearance that's got a really famous name it's called uh, a bird's um, beak appearance so it looks bird's like beak, a, literally yeah. a bird you know having a beak going into the stomach or okay. looking in so know, this sharp 
This sharp point, yeah. So okay. it's, that's how tight the lumen is. Jeez, yeah. Would you do an X-ray or CT or any of the other sort of? I, I guess they can all they can all be of certain yeah. use, right? I think the important part of CT is to rule out malignancy, <clears throat> and same with endoscopy as well, is to make sure there's not no nothing specifically blocking the the lumen that can cause the swallowing problems. There's another thing that measures pressure. Can you remind me what that is? They have a fancy name called manometry. So manometry. So I think they essentially just stick this long tube down your throat that at different points it will measure the um, the pressure that your your esophagus exerts on the tube and so they can generate these pretty patterns of when person swallows what part is relaxing and where yeah so i think in, in a patient with ecclesia the lower sphincter tone mm. is always high which means that you know it's really tight and it can't relax to accommodate food mm. so that's the advantage of manometry i guess it's a little bit invasive because you have to put a probe into um you know, into the body comfortable yeah but it's mm. it's a you know it's a diagnostic test that's used yep. so andy are there any treatments for ecclesia there's a few and there's can we can go in terms of as pharmacotherapy point of view as well as a surgical point of view yeah one of the things with pharmacotherapy therapy well people have tried is this thing called a calcium channel blocker and the reason why is because the sphincter down in the um, lower esophageal sphincter it's a smooth muscle sphincter and so if we block calcium calcium is essential for uh, the smooth muscle to contract so if yeah. we block that then the sphincter is going to relax but we also know that that's not a anatomical sphincter it's a functional one which also has other different reasons why it's actually contracting and keeping close so it we have minimal success with that one. yeah it's not very effective is it no. But what is an effective intervention for these patients? I remember they mentioned this thing called a balloon dilatation, where they just stick a, on an end of an endoscope, they stick this balloon that when they get to the part of the, the achalasia part, they will um, inflate that balloon and forcibly stretch open that. Mm, but yeah. I, I think that actually causes, if you can imagine, so they will permanently stretch open it. Yeah, and, and it doesn't close. It doesn't close. So they actually induce this secondary problem, which would be reflux. Reflux disease, yeah. And it can be quite severe in these patients because, yeah. you know, it's dilated and i mean at one hand they can eat yes but on the other hand they're going to get severe symptoms when they eat but i think there is a high recurrence rate with uh, endoscopic dilatation i think the rate of recurrence is about 50 50 percent will require a second or a third dilation within five years so it's not yeah it's whilst it's really good yeah eventually that the the sphincter comes back together and and then you have to do it again just out of my curiosity is there a certain amount of times where the person can a maximum amount of times where a person can have the balloon dilatation Uh, i'm not sure about that that's a good question if you guys know please uh, let us know we're always happy to learn are there any other interventions that you can you can use i think there are a few but i didn't quite understand them yeah what did you know i think there's the um intrasphincteric botulinum injection so that i guess that's more of a pharmacological treatment but what botulinum does it's a toxin it's botox so that causes relaxation of the muscles so they inject botox yeah okay but apparently it's only good for about uh, for a few months so usually for about couple of uh, up to six months of treatment and then these guys have to these patients have to have the injections again okay there's also um uh, another operation called um the heller's operation the heller's operation actually involves um removing some of the muscles uh or cutting away some of the muscles in the esophagus so it's a permanent procedure yeah that enables the uh, the sphincter to widen and accept more food okay um so i think these are the common approaches so you can have a bit of pharmacotherapy without too much effect you can have surgical intervention are there any complications with Kalasia, Andy? 
Is there an increased chance of actual cancer risks? Yeah, I guess that stems from the fact that these patients can get reflux, right? Because the esophagus oh, okay. is open. Then yes. you're going to get esophagitis. And then esophagitis may lead to metaplasia. Yep. Um, so it's um, what, I'm, what we're essentially leading to is Barrett's esophagus, which we're going to talk about okay. in, in, in a little bit. So there are some complications uh, associated with echolasia, probably because of the treatments that are used. But what do you do? Do you not treat the patient, say, if they lose weight, the disease progresses? And uh, that could be quite I think actually... I would prefer to treat the patient and we can try different ways to lim- limit the amount of acid coming exactly. back up. That's right. You can monitor and manage those um, as well. So mm. it's it's the lesser of the two evils, I guess. So let's talk about dysphagia, Andy, because I think that follows from ecclesia in terms of what you might come to expect. And, and, and I think it makes a bit more sense if we talk about it first. To define dysphagia, it's pretty much just difficulty swallowing food. Dysphagia, yeah? Yeah, yeah so dysphagia, phagia, food, this yep. something, um, you know, something abnormal. Yep. So it feels like food sticking in your um, esophagus. There's a couple of important features to dysphagia that we need to distinguish. We need to distinguish whether it's coming from the oryngeal pharynx area, so from the the mouth and the pharynx yep. or whether it's coming from the esophagus. Okay, yeah. So let's talk about the oropharyngeal side of things first. You've got neurological yep. components. You mm-hmm. can have potentially muscular components and you can have structural components. Okay, yeah. So neurological would be anything that inhibits you from actually swallowing or initiating the swallowing reflex. Yes. Muscular would be things where you get muscle wastage or inability to actually contract your muscles. Yeah. So myosina gravis would be an example where, you know, uh, okay. this due to an autoimmune condition, you can't actually coordinate your muscles to contract and structural would be if you've got a diverticulum so you just the food instead of going to the esophagus it's going into a, a pouch and it just stays there so let's talk about do you want to maybe um, talk about the esophageal side of it because um, that's important to make that distinction with the esophageal part of it we can look into whether if there's a mechanical obstruction or there is a neuromuscular disorder of it neuromuscular disorder we mentioned before was the achalasia that falls under that falls under neuromuscular parts. Other ones, there's also these sort of esophageal spasms also fall under neuromuscular. But on the other hand, let's say if you've got this uh, carcinoma that's growing out of the esophagus and that blocks up the blocks up the lumen or you've got a lower esophageal ring these kinds of diseases can cause a mechanical obstruction to the yeah. esophagus and one of the ways to distinguish it is whether if solid foods get stuck or is it both solid foods and liquids get stuck so with mechanical obstruction if you've got something that's blocking the way then solid foods get stuck but liquids can flow past it but if it's actually the esophagus from a neuromuscular point of view then both solid foods and liquids can get stuck yeah exactly because there's no obstruction there's just something else going on so i think it's important to make that distinction so let's just go through again so with the esophageal esophageal phase you've got you know you need to see whether is it solid food or is it solids and liquid if it's solid you're thinking going down the lungs are mechanical and you can have this progressive so patients just complain of this worsening okay yeah and and that could be either you know you worry about cancers in that sort of situation you worry about these peptic strictures or fibrosis or tightening of the uh, the esophagus yeah if they're talking about hey i get this occasionally maybe there's some sort of esophageal ring which we're not going to talk about and you guys can look into it further if they're talking about solids and liquids then it could be neuromuscular right and if it's intermittent then maybe they're just getting this diffuse spasm because you know, something's happening with peristalsis okay but if it's progressive then you start thinking about hey maybe they've got echolasia and uh, progressive loss of their enteric nervous system function yeah is there anything else that you want to add no i think that covers it 
a wide range of why why yeah. people have difficulty swallowing. Exactly. So that's dyspepsia, uh, dyspepsia for you. Let's talk about another term that is often confused. Dyspepsia, not dysphagia, dyspepsia. Dyspepsia, yeah. That's right. What's dyspepsia? I can't even pronounce it. <laughs> so I think dyspepsia is this sort of feeling that you're, you're bull in the stomach, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, you get this sort of vague epigastric pain. You know, something's going on. You're not really sure what's happening. It's, uh, it needs to be for at least greater than three months, uh, continuously for three months. Okay, yeah. I think it's a diagnosis by elimination. So you want to rule out everything else. And if you can't explain it, then you say, hey, maybe you've got this dyspepsia. Oh, geez, that is vague. But in terms of dyspepsia, you've got two types. You've got functional dyspepsia where... These guys complain of epigastric fullness and pain. Okay, yeah. And burning. And you've got epigastric syndrome where it's just, you know, intermittent pain. There's no sort of fullness present. So okay. that's the distinction. So functionally, you've got this fullness, epigastric pain. It's just this intermittent pain. But I guess the question is, what are some possible theories about the causes? Do you want to maybe talk about that a little bit? I think one of the causes is this sort of abnormality that occurs with the motility of the, um, uh, of the stomach. So maybe there is a delayed gastric emptying or there is some sort of lack in the receptor, sorry, the receptive relaxation of the stomach. So because of these things, the stomach doesn't distend as much. And so you get this extra fullness pain from, from the stomach. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you can have also visceral sensory abnormalities, which account for about 30% of, of these cases. Look, I'm not sure how proven this is, or, mm. you know, but this is probably just based on epidemiological studies. And this is the visceral sensory abnormalities encompass, you know, hypersensitivity, not allergies, but just pain or distension in the stomach might be, might be a cause. Okay. You can have psychological factors as well, which might contribute to this. Yeah. But at the moment, there's no really consensus about, you know, how to treat it uh, and how to diagnose it aside from that exclusion criteria. That's dyspepsia. There, I don't think there isn't much else to say no. about that. Yeah. Um, let's move on to Barrett's esophagus, Andy. What's um, Barrett's esophagus? Basically, Barrett's esophagus in a sentence is this change from normal cell cell lining of the esophagus to this other type of cell lining. And so the term is that needs to be in the definition is this process called metaplasia. What essentially metaplasia is, is just a normal physiological process of the body to adapt the cells from one type to another type. And why is this happening? It's because there is a constant acid reflux from the from the stomach that that bathes the esophagus with this new acidic environment, and the body is adapting to this new environment. That's right. So you just get this esophagitis, and then as a consequence, you your body's trying to cope with this high p and um, low pH environment. Low pH. So it goes from normal squamous epithelium to a uh, to a columnar epithelium what's interesting though is that the columnar epithelium isn't the ones in the stomach it's reflects duodenal columnar epithelium duodenal okay. yeah which is really unusual it's not explained why this happens but you know it, it happens so actually is it do if it's duodenal so i say that we expect um some goblet cells in it or maybe something like yeah that. maybe that's yeah mm. I, I would suspect so intestinal yeah but okay. why is this a problem what like what's the big deal about barrett and why do we care as i said the metaplasia itself is a normal physiological process so if we get rid of the acid the body actually reverts back and so that's all fine if we leave this untreated for too long this constant changing or an adaption can increase the risk of cancers yeah that's right exactly um so we worry about the risk of adenocarcinoma patients with with this yeah well how do we manage it then yeah it's well and true that these guys have this problem is there anything we can do so i would say that if you use a high dose ppis or proton pump inhibitor to reduce the amount of acid being secreted in the stomach then we would reduce the amount of acid that actually affects the esophagus so you're kind of treating the cause of the esophagitis which is you know 
or maybe reflux, right? Mm, true. So you give them this suppression. Yeah. But what if they've got established metaplasia? Is there anything we can do for that? Would you be suggesting something like an excising or like getting rid of it? Possibly. Or? I guess before you go there, you probably have to monitor them first. So you do, you know, if there's no dysplasia, so no abnormal structures observed, okay. yeah. you might just do, you can do an endoscopy every three years. But if there's high grade dys- dysplasia, so abnormal <coughs> cells, you probably need to have more frequent surveillance, maybe once every two, uh, 12 months. Okay, yeah. Or once every two years. Yeah. If it's really bad, then yeah, you have to ablate or uh, excise that affected uh, affected area. Yeah. Um, but aside from that, I don't think there isn't there isn't any other sort of uh, treatment of approaches uh, for Barrett's. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you want to add? No, I think that's pretty much Barrett's in a. Um in a few sentences. That's right. So as you as you guys can see, the, this stuff is mainly definition based. It's not 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 too complicated. And for some of these conditions, the treatments can be a little bit unclear. Let's finish off the talk by um, discussing peptic strictures, Andy, which is again a very it's mainly de- definition type um, mm. conversation. So what is a peptic um, stricture? Actually, I'm not too sure what a peptic stricture is. Tell me about. I it. think it's just um, tightening of um, of the lower esophageal sphincter, maybe due to fibrosis. How, so how is that different to achalasia? Well, achalasia is uh, mainly neurological. Yes. Right. Whereas this is more of, because it's fibrosis, it's mainly mecha- mechanical. So it's actually... <laughs> actually, I went through that just then. Yes, you're yeah, right. So yeah, it's, it's a little right. bit, it's, it's, it's a little bit confusing, but the causes are slightly different. Yeah. So if you have constant fibrosis of, of that region due to lots of acid, then you're going to get this fibrotic stricture. Again, in terms of um, di- diagnosis, you can ha- perform an endoscopy or a barium study might might reveal something. There isn't a whole lot you can do, I- I'm, I'm, to be honest, and I think it's just endoscopic dilation that we talked about for ecclesia and long-term PPIs to minimize the acid reflux that could be worsening it. That's pretty much all I wanted to talk about uh, with regards to upper gastric pathologies. Is there anything else you want to add? No, I think that's about it. And if there was anything unclear, have a re-listen to the talk and... And, um, and also address us through email. Yeah, just just shoot us an email or um, correct us if we've made a mistake. We always look forward to your feedbacks. I think we'll leave it at that. We'll leave it at Until that. Until next time, guys. Thank you very much. See ya.